I would ask that you turn with me today in your Bibles to our text, which comes from the Gospel of Mark as we continue our our study in Mark's Gospel. And today we come to verses 31 to 33. So Mark chapter 8, verses 31 to 33. Brothers and sisters, and please hear with me the reading of God's Word. And He began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And He said this plainly. And Peter took Him aside and began to rebuke Him. But turning and seeing His disciples, He rebuked Peter and said, Get behind Me, Satan! For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Thus far as a reading of God's Word. Now last week we reached a turning point in Mark's Gospel as Peter and the Apostles finally correctly identify Jesus as the Messiah, as the Christ. Right? They acknowledged Him to be the Anointed One of God, Prophet, Priest, and King, they acknowledged that all former revelation found its fulfillment in the person of Christ. Right? They, they confessed that He was ordained by God to be Redeemer and Savior of God's people. Right? Finally, we have seen that their, their faith has matured. And yet, although their faith has matured and they understand who stands before them, perhaps that maturity in faith has caused them to think that they know a little more than they actually did. They think, hey, well, we got this right. right? We, we correctly identified who Jesus was. Many people were saying he's John the Baptist or he's Elijah or he's one of the prophets. So we must be much smarter than everyone else. We must, we must have our things together. Right? We must have this, this great and sound knowledge. But what happens usually, brothers and sisters, when we think that we have arrived, when we think that we, we know everything, when we get a little prideful maybe and we, we puff our chest out a bit, what happens? Right, usually we get humbled pretty quickly, don't we? And we are soon reminded that we don't know everything that we think we do. Right, we are not all that we, are, that we think that we are cracked up to be. There is so much more to learn and to grow and to understand. And this is what the disciples are, are going to realize in our text today. Right, they learn that there is still so much that they do not understand. Now, Jesus' purpose thus far has not been to throw everything at the apostles because it would have been too much. Right? We could just imagine what that would be like. Right? All of you, as you sit here today, what you know now is not what you knew when you first were converted. Imagine if when you were first converted, someone sat you down and they said, okay, now I'm going to teach you all of the doctrines of the faith. Let's, let's learn the doctrines of grace. Let's learn eschatology. Let's learn covenant theology. Let's learn ecclesiology right now. I mean, wouldn't have it just went over all of our heads, right? Most of it would have just flew right over. Why? Because that's not what we needed. We needed a foundation. We needed a basis. We needed to be grounded. We needed to know what salvation was. We needed to know who the person of Christ was. We need to understand the gospel better. We need to understand our God better. Right? And then over time, we can build upon that, right? And this is the approach we see that Jesus takes with His disciples. Right Over the course of His ministry, He has been teaching them slowly though, giving them time to realize who He is. 
Because this was a matter of first importance. They first had to come to understand Jesus is Christ. But now that they have, it's now time for them to be able to digest new information. Now that they have the proper framework by which to see everything else with. They believe that He is Messiah. Now, knowing this, Jesus says, you know I'm Messiah, but now you need to know what my Messiahship entails. And even though He taught them slowly, and even though He taught them carefully, and even though He taught them at the proper time, we see that what His Messiahship entails, what He reveals to them today, confounds the saints. Although they confessed Him to be Messiah, they didn't fully grasp what that meant. Right? They were still thinking earthly kingdom. They were thinking that the Messiah was going to come and conquer Israel's enemies and set up His earthly reign. That they were going to be victorious. And so, they don't like what Jesus has to say. Because it is not what they wanted, nor is it what they expected. Because what Jesus comes and says to them is that what my Messiahship entails is that I become a suffering Messiah. A suffering Messiah. And hearing this, this must have struck at the hearts of the apostles. They must have been shocked by it. This was not what they were expecting. This is not how it was supposed to go. And so it's this interaction between Jesus and His apostles based on this new information that He has revealed that we are going to focus our attention on this morning. And so we are going to look at these three verses then under three points this morning. And so they are this. Point one is the mission unveiled. Mission unveiled. Point two then will be mission denied. Mission denied. And point three will be no stopping the mission. No stopping the mission. So point one, mission unveiled. What do I mean by that? Well, look at verse 31. We're told, Jesus began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and be killed and after three days rise again. Right? We see from the very outset Jesus is laying out to His disciples what His mission is. And He's openly unveiling it to them. Right? There's, there's no beating around the bush. In fact, in verse 32, what are we told? He told them these things clearly. That's to say, although in times past He has spoken parable, He has spoke metaphorically and figuratively, but here He is literally setting forth to them what His mission must entail so that it would be easy for them to understand. Now as Jesus begins to teach, what does He say? He first calls Himself the Son of Man. Remember what we said about the Son of Man before. This is a a self-designation that our Lord uses for Himself. And He uses it oftentimes in respect to His state of humiliation. In Matthew chapter 8, verse 20, we're told the Son of Man has nowhere to lay His head. In Matthew 20, 28, we're told the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve. In Matthew eleven 19, we're told that Jesus says the Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, behold, a gluttonous man and a, a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. And now Jesus reveals to the disciples that the Son of Man must also suffer many things. And those things that He is to suffer are twofold, He tells us. Right? He is to be rejected and He is to be killed. 
Our Lord is to be rejected and killed. And who is to reject Him, He says. He says the elders, the chief priests, and the scribes. Now the elders were civil judges over the nation of Israel. right? And they belonged to the Sanhedrin. right? You had the, 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 the chief priests were, who were high priests or high-ranking members of the priesthood. And then you had the scribes, who we've said oftentimes. They were the interpreters and the expositors of God's law. And so Jesus is saying to His disciples, these people must reject Me. And isn't that exactly what we've been seeing through the first half of Mark's Gospel? Right? Jesus is continually being rejected by the religious elite. Right? They are constantly dragging His name and reputation through the mud. They said that He's done miracles by the power of Satan. They've called Him a sinner for breaking the Sabbath. They have said and denied His authority to forgive sin, which in essence is calling Jesus a liar. And yet, this isn't even the half of it. The worst is to come, and He is still to be killed. And so Jesus is revealing this to them in order to prepare them so that they might know what is to come. He doesn't want them to be caught off guard. He doesn't want them to be surprised by this. But He's also then telling them what the true mission of the Messiah is. Right? He's correcting their misconception of what His Messiahship entails. And He's saying that to be Messiah means I must be a suffering Messiah. I must be rejected and I must be killed. And yet what we see from Jesus' words is what? That this Messiahship and what it entails is not up for debate. Right? What Jesus is saying is that this is necessary for Jesus to go through. He says, the Son of Man must suffer these things. Right? What Jesus is saying is these things cannot happen any other way. And why is that? Well, it's because of sin, brothers and sisters. Right? Sin has brought wrath. It has brought guilt. It has brought punishment. And atonement must be made for our sin. And the apostles should have understood this because the whole sacrificial system pointed to this greater atonement that was necessary for them. Right? The blood of bulls and goats of the Old Covenant never was able to take away sin to begin with. And so Jesus is saying a, a bloody atonement is necessary. It is the only acceptable atonement. And I am that bloody sacrifice. I am that perfect spotless Lamb of God who has come to take away the sins of the world. And yet, isn't this a message even today that has become a stumbling block for many? Right? They say, how can the righteous God, the Father, send His Son who is done nothing wrong to die in the place of wretched sinners. That doesn't seem right. I don't want to serve a God who would do something like that. That is because, brothers and sisters, so many people do not understand the nature of sin. And they don't understand the holiness of God. Right? Sin was deserving of infinite punishment. A punishment that you and I could not deal with. We could not handle. And so God could not just look past sin. He could not just let it go. To do so would be to violate His very nature. Right? God is the just judge of the entire world and so He could never forego justice. And so the redemption of man could only come through the satisfaction of divine justice and perfect righteousness. Right? A justice you and I could not bear. A righteous living that you and I could not do. 
And so, Christ incarnate was the only qualified person to stand in the place of sinners, being both God and man. He is able to bear the weight of our sin and at the same time fulfill all righteousness. And so Jesus comes offering Himself as a propitiatory sacrifice for us. An offering for our offenses, understanding that if He didn't die this bloody death, if He didn't suffer, then there would be no forgiveness of sin. And so what we need to come to understand and what the apostles don't really understand until after the resurrection is the magnitude of Christ's love for His people. Right? The magnitude of Christ's love for His people seen in His bloody atonement. What is it that we see here? Jesus knows exactly what the mission is. He knows what must happen beforehand. He tells them, I must be rejected. I must be killed. And yet He willingly, voluntarily, and readily offers Himself up for us. And so what I want us to see is the, the measure that had to be met. I want you to see the lengths that, we, that had to be gone to in order for our sin to be forgiven. It was no easy task. It was difficult for our sins to be forgiven. So difficult that only the death of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ could accomplish it, could take away our sin. And thinking about that, trying to wrap your head around that, isn't it then unconscionable to think that there are people who still call themselves Christians who can go along sinning without giving a second thought to their sin, without mourning or grieving or feeling any shame for their sin, which demonstrates that they do not care about what it costs to have their sin forgiven. And we must be sure that the, the sin that Christ died for if you are a believer, it was your sin, which necessarily means what? That it was your sin that nailed Christ to the cross. And so how can we go on right, not feeling great grief and agony when we sin? Right, we are to mourn sin, brothers and sisters. We are to see our sin as poison. And what do you do with poison? Do you sleep with poison? Do you take it around with you in your car? Do you drink it? Do you let it in, ingest it into your body? No. You keep far away from poison. And that is how we are to see sin. And then when we think about the cross, what we all also ought to see is the heinousness of our sin. When we think about the bloody atonement of Christ, it ought to remind us of the heinousness of our sin. And yet, brothers and sisters, there is good news because we are not to be crushed underneath our sin, right? Because at the very next moment that we think of how our sin crucified Christ, then we ought to remember that on the cross our sin has been dealt with. Right? So the punishment that Christ bore on our behalf is one that we will never have to bear. And for this we should all be comforted. That we should all be comforted by Christ. As He reveals to His apostles today, then not only must he suffer many things, he must be rejected, he must be killed, but he also tells them good news, right? He says that he will rise again. Without the resurrection of Christ, we would all be dead in our trespasses and sins. We needed him to rise once more. This is what Paul says in Romans chapter 1, chapter 4, verse 25, excuse me, that Jesus was delivered up for our transgressions, but what? 
He was raised for our justification. We needed Christ to be raised. Right? Paul says, and then in Romans 1-4, that Jesus was declared Son of God by the resurrection from the dead. Now being raised, He confirms, brothers and sisters, to you and us, the certainty of our own resurrection through His life, death, and resurrection. Right? This is what Jesus is trying to get His apostles to see. Although His mission is to suffer rejection and to be killed, He will rise again on the third day. What He's saying to them is that there must be humiliation before exaltation. Right? What He's saying to them is, I must be abased before I can be glorified. But I will rise again. And He tells them this to comfort them and to give them courage in the face of all suffering and persecution. But they deny this. They want no part of it. And this takes us into point number two, which is mission denied. Right? Jesus unveils His mission now that they understand Him to be Messiah. And He says, My Messiahship entails that I suffer many things, that I be rejected, that I be killed, but I will rise on the third day. And yet, what's Peter's response? is to deny Christ's mission. We're told in verse 32, after being told this, Peter took Jesus aside and began to rebuke Him. Now, there are a few things that I want us to see here. First, Peter takes Jesus aside. This is not an insignificant event. Why do you think he takes Jesus aside? He's trying to be respectful of Jesus. He doesn't want to rebuke Jesus in front of the apostles. He thinks he's doing the right thing by taking Jesus aside. In fact, though, but he does not understand that what he is doing is an evil thing. Because I want us all to see in this taking Jesus aside, what he is also demonstrating is a great amount of arrogance, isn't it? Right? When he takes Jesus aside and he rebukes Jesus, what is he saying? Lord, I know that you have this plan, but it's a bad plan. It's a wrong plan. You need to listen to me because I know what is best. When Peter should have known better, shouldn't he? Right? He should have known that Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God, who he just finished confessing, could not err. He should have known that if Jesus was ordained by God and sent to him, then he was on a mission that he could not get sidetracked off of. But what I think caused Peter to neglect, to think about this, as he pulls Jesus aside to rebuke him, is the fear for his own life. Right? Why do you think one of the reasons is that they want glory? They want Jesus to come and conquer now. Because they know if Jesus gets glory now, they get glory now. And so what do you think now is in Peter's head when he hears that the Messiah must suffer, be rejected, and die? Well, if he gets glory, I get glory. That means if he gets rejected and he gets killed, I'm going to get rejected and I'm going to get killed. And Peter does not want that. But Peter doesn't understand, brothers and sisters, the ramifications of what he's saying, does he? Because in saying this, what if Jesus would have listened to Peter's plan, He would have prevented the cross. Right? Peter's plan was to prevent the cross. Was to prevent salvation. He would have 
plunged us all right into eternal damnation once again, losing out on our escape from the punishments of hell. Right? But what Peter says as he pulls Jesus to the side and rebukes him, what he is saying is really, Jesus, I don't think my sin needs all of that. I don't think my sin is that great of a big of a deal. It doesn't need your suffering. It doesn't need your death. Right? Peter doesn't understand the, the gravity of his sin, but isn't this humbling proof of our own, of our own fallibility and ignorance as people, doesn't it? I think many of us, all of us, have been like Peter in our lives, haven't we? Right? When, when things have not gone the way that we've wanted, haven't we said, well, why Lord? Why would you do it this way? You ought to have done it this way. This was the better way. Why did my spouse have to die? Why did my son or daughter have to suffer this terminal condition? You know, why did I have to have a miscarriage? Two, three of them. Why did I lose my job? Why is it, Lord, that I followed You and yet I have struggled to pay my bills my entire life? Why? Why did You do it this way? If You just would have listened to me, things would have turned out so much better for me. But how can any of us rebuke the One who has called all things into existence? How can we rebuke the One who has given us life and eternal life in His Son? How can we rebuke the One who is infallible and omniscient, whose ways are not our ways, whose ways are always pure, righteous, just, good? But isn't this exactly what we see going on throughout our society today? Aren't many people today saying, Lord, I know that You've created me this way, but you got it wrong. I'm supposed to be that way. You've given me a body of a man, but I feel like a woman. You screwed up. I know better for myself. So you know what I will do? I will go mutilate my body out of rebellion to my Creator and Maker. Isn't this what we see with same-sex marriage? God, I know that You have ordained marriage between a man and a woman from creation. But you got it wrong. That's not what's best for me in my life. Right? Isn't this what we see even between Christian men and women? Right? Who decide to go out and marry an unbeliever. Right? Knowing what the Word of God says about that. We are not to be unequally yoked with the unbeliever. And yet, what do we say? Ah, God, I know You have a plan for me. I know what You have called me to do, but I know better. You see, brothers and sisters, what is constantly going on is we are constantly trying to dethrone God and put ourselves on His throne. Right? That's what Peter is doing here. Right? He is dethroning God. He is saying, My will is more important, Father, than Your will. He is thinking and esteeming Himself higher than He thinks and esteems of God in this moment. And then the last mistake that Peter makes as he pulls Jesus aside to rebuke him is that he's demonstrating an ignorance of the Old Testament. Right? What Jesus has revealed to them, what must happen to them, is not something that was foreign to the minds of the Jews. Right? They were well aware of Isaiah 53. 
But what was their problem? They interpreted that as that was the, what was going to happen to Israel. Right? They interpreted those texts in light of themselves, not in light of the Messiah. Right? In Isaiah 53, verse 3, we're told, He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows. Right? And what did Jesus already tell us? He must be rejected. In verse 5 of Isaiah 53, But He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon Him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with His wounds we are healed. In verse 11, Out of the anguish of His soul He shall see and be satisfied. By His knowledge shall the righteous one, My servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and He shall bear their iniquities. Right When Jesus said these words to them, they should have thought back to the Isaiah text, recognized what Jesus, who He was identifying Himself with. Right, But they didn't. Out of ignorance, of the Old Testament text. But we see what happens when we are not familiar with God's Word, don't we? We can fall into error. This is what the uh, those two men on the road to Emmaus were guilty of, wasn't it? As they are walking and Jesus appears before them, they don't recognize Him. And He asks them, you know, what's going on here? And they say, this man that we thought was going to redeem Israel failed, I guess. He suffered and he died. And what was Jesus' response to them? You foolish ones! Slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. This is the same thing that Peter today in our text is guilty of. Slow of heart to believe what the prophets have spoken. And this, brothers and sisters, then takes us to our our third and final point this morning, which is no stopping the mission. Look at verse 33 with me, please. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of men. Right? What is the first thing Jesus does? He turns and he looks at the other apostles. And he rebukes Peter. Right? Peter's open rebellion and open sin demanded an open rebuke. And yet also, I would submit to you what he is doing as he turns to rebuke Peter in front of the disciples as he is likewise rebuking the rest of them. Because most assuredly, they all were thinking just like Peter was, but only Peter was the one who had the, the guts to say it. He spoke as the representative of the group. And so, Peter's rebuke of Jesus demanded an even harsher rebuke. And we see that when he says, Get behind me, Satan! Right? What a sharp rebuke that is. Right? That must have pierced Peter to the heart because before this, who is the only other person that he ever spoke to like this? Satan himself. Right? If you remember in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 4, verse 10, as he is driven out to the wilderness by the Spirit, Satan comes and tries to tempt Jesus. And what does he say to him in response? Be gone, Satan! Right? He is saying the exact same thing here to Peter in our text. Just like saying Peter was trying to get Jesus to disobey the will of the Father by abandoning the cross. And so Peter deservedly was told, get behind me, Satan. Right? Jesus is saying, in doing that, in trying to get me off of the mission that the Father has sent me on, you are doing the work of the evil one. And as we know, Jesus will not allow anything to push him off the mission. Right? There is no stopping the mission of Christ. But in how 
our Lord responds to Peter. I want us to all see this, but especially the children. Right? The children, young to the, to the older children. I want you to see this. Because Jesus is dealing with friends right now, isn't he? Right? These are his close personal friends. Right? And you are going to have close friends. And you're going to have people that you think really care for you and are really looking out for you and have the best intentions for you. But they are going to do the exact same thing here that Peter did. Right? They are going to tempt you to sin. Even though it might not be their intention. They might have good intentions. Right? Peter's intention was not to sin or to cause uh, our Lord to sin or to cause him to disobey our Lord. But that is exactly what he was doing. Right? And so you all must be those who have just moved out, those who are planning on moving out. Right? You are going to have opportunities with friends that they're going to ask you to do things that you know your Heavenly Father says, do not do. And so we need to have a swift response in those circumstances. Realizing that when people ask you to do those things, right, that is coming from the evil one himself. And you are to flee those things. Right? You are not to go along with them. Let me give you just a, a quick example of what I think happens probably every Sunday in this country. Right? People are making the suggestion maybe Saturday night. Hey, what are you doing tomorrow? Well, I'm going to church. Well, how about instead I got tickets to the Packer game? Or I got tickets to the Brewers game? Or how about let's, let's go shopping? Or why don't you come over to the house? Order some food and watch some TV all day. Those are good intentions, aren't they? They just want to have fun with their friend. Just relax a little bit. Right? But brothers and sisters, we have to understand that we do not base decisions based upon the opinions of our friends. Right? We don't, we don't go along with what they say or not say. But rather, we base all of our decisions, everything that we do upon the Word of God. Right? And so in an instance like that, what are we to say? We're, we're to remember that our Lord says, do not forsake the assembly. We're to remember that our Lord says, keep holy my Sabbath day. Right? And we are to forego what our friends have asked us to do and we are to obey the Lord. And remember what happens when we don't obey the Lord. Even if our intentions are good, there are many consequences that follow that. Right? We can look to someone like Adam and Eve, can't we? They had good intentions. They weren't trying to do any harm, were they? They just wanted to be wise like God. But what happened? Through their sin, they plunged all of humanity under the curse. Think of Uzzah in Second Samuel chapter 6. When the Israelites, David and all the Israelites are walking back and they're celebrating, right? After defeating the Philistines and they're carrying the Ark of the Covenant, what happens? The Ark tips over and Uzzah reaches his hand out to grab it, which seems like a, a smart thing to do. He had good intentions. He didn't want it to fall on the ground, but what happened? It kindled the anger of the Lord and he was killed that instant for not obeying God. Think of Nadab and Abihu. These men wanted to worship the Lord. What better intentions were those? And yet they offered unto, the, unto God what He had not commanded and what happened? He was struck down on the spot. We have to understand that good intentions don't matter. What we need to do is we need to obey the Word of God. The Word of God is to direct us in our life. Now, brothers and sisters, our Lord in our text today, though, does also in this encounter tell us why these things happen. And He also tells us how we can keep from letting them happen. 
Right? In verse 33, at the end of it, what does he say? He says to Peter, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Right? What is Jesus saying to Peter here? Right? There are two ways of thinking that guide our way of living. Right? Either you can be carnally minded, or you can be spiritually minded. And in this moment, Peter is being carnally minded, isn't he? Right? He is thinking only about what's best for himself. He's thinking about what pleases Peter, what he wants. Right? He's not thinking about dishonoring God or causing Jesus to sin. Right? Right now, Peter's love is for the world. Right? He's thinking earthly thoughts. Because if Peter was thinking spiritually, if his head was in heaven and not on earth, he wouldn't have said these things. But see, the problem with Peter is right now, he finds Jesus' words about his suffering and his death as an offense. He takes offense to the fact that the Messiah has to die. And isn't this the same offense that many took when Paul was writing? Right? It was a, the cross was a stumbling block to the Jew and a foolishness to the Gentile. Right? Isn't the cross a, a stumbling block for many today? And yet, brothers and sisters, we should not be ashamed of the cross. We are to boast in Christ and we are to boast in the cross for in it we have our salvation. And so let this be a warning to us all. See the dangers of thinking carnally. See the dangers of loving the world. See the dangers of living on the earth with our minds stuck on the earth never thinking about heavenly realities. Not taking time to mortify our carnal lusts and desires. Yet what we also have to do is take a cue from Jesus' approach here. Right? What is He doing? He is warning them ahead of time of what must happen and in doing that, He is trying to prepare them for persecution and for suffering. Let us use this as an example and say to ourselves, well then how do we prepare ourselves for the onslaughts of Satan? Right? From suffering or persecution from the world. It is through preparation, brothers and sisters. We must be preparing ourselves for these things. Knowing what will inevitably come. And so what does that mean? That means putting on the armor of our Lord and Savior each and every day. Right? Living by faith. Reading His Word. Understanding His will. Living obediently to it. Constantly in prayer that He would not allow the evil one to lead us into temptation. We need to better understand the cross, brothers and sisters. We need to understand that glory only comes through suffering. And as we'll see next week, when Jesus says, you must take up your cross and follow Me, He's saying that the same is true for all of us. That was true for Him. Don't expect glory, He's saying, unless you're willing to first go through suffering. Yet, brothers and sisters, what we must be reminded of is that in the cross, we are more than conquerors. Right? In the cross, there is no more condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And so then lastly, let us look to the suffering and the rejection and the death of our Lord as a reminder to us all of how much more we ought to love our God. Let it be a reminder to us of how much more we ought to love our Savior. And if you want to know how to love Him more, you know what you do? You think about Him more. Right? You, you're, not, you're never going to love Christ more if you think about Him less. 
You're going to love Christ more the more time you spend thinking about what He has done for you, when you think about His love for you, when you think about His sacrifice for you, then you are going to love and have a deeper and more intimate love for your Lord. And out of that love then, we ought to reciprocate. Out of gratitude, through obedience, right, seeking the will of God in all things and abandoning our own will. So brothers and sisters, please bow your heads with me in prayer. Heavenly Father, we, we confess that so often we place our own will in a place, in a place of preeminence over yours. And so we must ask for forgiveness. We ask, Lord, that you would help us to never put a stumbling block before anyone. That we would not put anything to obscure people's vision of the cross. Father, we ask that you would give us strength to be obedient to your will and that you would give us wisdom to understand your word. We ask, Father, for help to likewise be knowledgeable and spiritually minded and to part with all carnal mindedness, seeing that those things will only cause us to err and sin. And so, Father, we ask that you would help us to desire to seek and to set our minds upon the things of God. So, Father, we come before you asking all these things. In Christ Jesus' name we pray. Amen.